remember I was out in the backyard one day sanding, and I was out there for hours sanding with this little palm sander. And I stopped. And you're like, and it was still going. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I look up, and it's there's Brent's in the same neighborhood. I mean, it's wide open spaces, and I'm thinking, what the hell is a weed eater flying overhead? And here's this drone just staring at me at like eight feet. Very ominous. <laughs> and there's no, there's nobody there. And I thought, what wow. the hell is going on here? And then my neighbor comes walking up through the field. <laughs> I'm like, I have got to have that. He goes, you want to fly it? I'm like, no, I don't want to break <laughs> it. He goes, you can't break this thing. And I'm like, all right. There was a loss in the bourbon world this week. Master distiller emeritus for Heaven Hill, Parker Beam, passed away after his fight with ALS. Parker saw Heaven Hill through the golden age of the 60s, the decline in the 70s, and paved the way for today's new excitement. He was responsible for bringing out Heaven Hill's first premium small batch bourbon, Elijah Craig, in 1986, Evan Williams single barrels in 1994, and of course, Parker's Heritage Collection. Our prayers and condolences go out to his wife, Linda, his family, and the entire Heaven Hill family. For this week's episode, we're returning back to the distilleries to hear the stories from the inside. There's more bonus content that didn't make in this episode when we talk about drone racing, barbecuing, and more that you can only hear if you're on page, if you're a Patreon supporter. Patreon sponsorships start as little as $1 a month. So please, if you like what you hear, support the show. It really does go a long way in making this podcast great. Visit patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash bourbon pursuit. Enjoy this week's episode. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits 
and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome back to the episode of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast. Kenny here, back again at Four Roses. We are doing our tour of Lawrenceburg. And uh, you know what? I'm very, very happy to have uh, Lennon Ferguson back on the podcast again today. So, Lennon, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Lennon, for anybody that doesn't know about you, quickly give us a, a recap of who you are and what you know about bourbon. Hey, I'm uh, Lyndon Ferguson, live in Crestwood, Kentucky. Lived in Kentucky all my life. Been drinking bourbon, not all my life, but, you know, for the better part of, uh, you know, 15 years or so. And uh, so I'm just happy to be here. Thank you. Well, good. So, again, thank you and welcome to the show. And I know we're we're kind of out of the gum today, so we are going to go ahead and just jump into it. So today we have Ryan Ashley. Ryan is the COO and the Director of Distillery Operations here at Four Roses. So, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So one of the questions that we always start the show off with and, and kind of just try to give a gauge of just to see that you're not um, infallible, that you are human is, um, you know, talk about your past. Like, where'd you grow up and, you know, how did you get into all this? Okay. Uh, I'm originally from the Midwest. I grew up in Wisconsin. Uh, I was born just outside of Milwaukee uh, and then moved to Green Bay in the second grade. Uh, did most of my schooling in Green Bay. After high school, moved to Milwaukee, went to Marquette University. My grandfather was a brewer uh, for Miller for 40 years. My other grandfather uh, worked for Red Star Yeast. And of course, being in the Midwest, being in Milwaukee, hearing all these stories growing up about how they were bootleggers, and of course, just about everybody was a bootlegger or made their own beer, really got me interested in, in first making beer. And I didn't really have a taste for beer necessarily. I liked tinkering and I liked building and creating. So I got into brewing and the results were really good. Um, and then I started to develop my palate for, for beer and brewing and ended up going on to school for brewing. I've studied all over the world. I've taught people from all over the world. Um, but I did brewing from about 94 till about 2006. And it was at that time that I, I found the opportunity here at Four Roses and transitioned from brewing to distilling. And, and really, I went from the, the craft brewing segment, having my own craft breweries and helping other people design beers and, and build breweries around the world. Um, I went to work for one of the big industrial light lager breweries out in Southern California to gain the other side of the experience. Um, and decided that I really wanted to come back to my craft roots. And really, when, when this opportunity at Four Roses presented itself 10, 11 years ago, it seemed like the perfect opportunity because, again, I went from this huge complex to um, this beautiful historic site. I could get my arm, arms around the entire process, and I was really involved in the process. You know, I, I could be the one making the changes and, and fine-tuning and, and really keeping the liquid flowing through the plant. Because um, because the odd thing is is that pretty much everything up until making bourbon is pretty much the same thing as making beer. Yes, yes. The thing I was appalled at or shocked at when I came here was the difference in sanitation of a distillery and a brewery. Now that's not special to Four Roses. That's any distillery, but you know the beer that you make in a brewery has got to stay fresh until it gets until the day the consumer opens that, and you can't predict that. It can be riding around in the trunk of a car, sitting under fluorescent lights in a convenience store or whatever. So it has to have a pretty good shelf, a really good shelf life. 
the beer that we make here only lives to be 88 hours old from the yeah. time it's mashed to the time we distill it. And then, of course, you're distilling. It's alcohol. It's sterilized. Um, so it's, it's yeah, I wasn't shocked. But, yeah, it's, it's very, very similar to making beer with the added step now of concentrating those flavors through distillation. And then, of course, the aging process. Because you were pretty much a pretty big beer guy before all this started, right? I mean, Correct. I think I've, I've read it before that you were – Totally into beer, like you—you th- you didn't know that bourbon was going to be your thing, but I mean, you thought beer was beer was your world, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Still has a big chunk of my world. Um, you know, it was nice. It really beer, really um, or brewing, I should say, really took over my life. My family was very uh, accommodating to that, very understanding, um, but you know, it was constant day in and day out. So kind of switching gears and, and I brought beer back to be more of my hobby. I have a pretty nice little automated nano brewery at home so I can brew for the neighborhood or, you know, whoever myself. Um, and this is nice because I get to do the same thing. I'm still crafting. I'm still making something. There's still the science. There's still the art. Um, of course, in distilling, we say there's also a little bit of voodoo. Um, but it's, you know, I'm doing essentially what I want to do um, at just a different level. And I think the timing was perfect, too. You know, I got into brewing just before the brewing renaissance was really taking off and coincidentally got into bourbon before bourbon really started to take off. So because both of those timing was key, both of those, the the brewing industry, craft brewing and and bourbon is kind of like it's kind of followed the same upward uh, mobility. Yep. Yep. Oh, easily, easily. So I guess. um you know, one of the things that we want to talk about first off is talk about some of your job responsibilities around here, right? As, as a COO, as the, um, I don't know, what would you call yourself, the head of operations, kind of what, what are some of your day-to-day responsibilities here at, at the distillery at Four Roses? I think the, you know, the main focus is, one, making sure that we operate as a team. We're a very small group. Um, everybody wears many different hats. So, Communication is key, keeping my finger on the pulse, but also giving my team autonomy to do their job. Um, you know, I was afforded that throughout my entire career, so I really believe that's important. You know, people that are in this industry, specifically at Four Roses, are very passionate about what they do. Um, I think you'd be hard pressed to go through any of our employees and find somebody who's here because, oh, they they love number crunching or they, you know, or it's just a job. I mean, I would say 98 to 99% of our staff are here because they're passionate about bourbon and not just any bourbon, our bourbon. Um, so it's, it's keeping my finger on the pulse, making sure that our team is happy and, and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Um, you know, the, the nice thing is that bourbon is, you know, it's not new groundbreaking technology. Um, we're essentially doing the same thing over and over and over every three and a half hours, essentially. Um, but what makes it, you know, more exciting and more unique with Four Roses is we do things very, very differently. We have the five, uh, you know, five uh, yeast strains. We have the two different mash bills. So we're, we're mashing, cooking, fermenting, distilling, and aging 10 distinctly different bourbons year round. So, you know, the day to day is monitoring that and making sure everyone's, everyone's happy and everyone's working harmoniously and, and that the distillery's running at all times. I mean, we're at uh, maximum capacity right now. So, you know, it's quality first, quantity second, but, but every moment counts. You know, as you see out in the plant, we're, we're building at the same time that we're producing and that's, that's very tricky. So, you know, it's my, my job's gotten a little more complex as of recent because we're trying to produce, you know, as safely as possible, the highest quality distillate and 
every drop of that counts right now, but also add double the capacity so we can continue that on when we marry the whole plant together when the expansion is complete. So before I know, I, I want to talk about the expansion, but I also want to, I want to hear about a horror story. Horror story. Tell me, tell me a horror story. Like, tell me, tell me one time that you came into work and you're just like, shit just went, I mean, it just, it just oh, hit yeah. the wall. It'll happen. Yeah. It's it, now that you say that I will get a call at like 3am. Um, it, it's, we have a very talented team. I mean, throughout the entire operation, people are, they take complete ownership in what they do. Um, we don't have management here on the off shifts or the weekends or even the holidays. We empower our people to make decisions. If they feel they need more support or they just don't want to pull the trigger on their own, they have, they have, you know, they can call up the line and, and we're going to assist them. I can dial in from home and look at the automation and the system and, and help people with the programs. But God, an oh shit moment. Um, I think it was, I started in January, late January. And so it was our first shutdown. So I'd only been here five months. I think it was May, maybe June. And I was assistant director. My boss was director and COO. He was on vacation and I could not get a hold of him. And uh, the the gears that run the the cooker that that turn everything and make it moving, which is essential, otherwise it'll turn to basically jello and you're dead in the water, seized. And uh, so here I am. Of course, it happens on a Friday and it's 3 p.m. And now I've got to make the call. You know, do we shut down and wait for a new one to come in? Uh, do we pull the old one out and have it repaired? You know, what's what's the what's the quickest answer? So I had to make a pretty high dollar decision on my own on the fly. And the result was we ordered a brand new one, got it in as quickly as possible, then took the one that was seized up out, had it refurbished. And it's sitting in the barn waiting for this expansion project to be used. Um, but it's, you know, again, when you're you're producing quality product, um, but, you know, you're at maximum capacity, every moment counts. And so, you know, my job was to get it up and running as soon as possible. Um, I'm sure there are other oh shit moments. I'm sure as soon as I drive out of here, I'll think of one. Um, I can think of some oh shit moments in, in brewing that were that were pretty crazy. But I, I guess that's that's good. I mean, things are pretty even keeled here. It's uh, um, brewing is a little more fast paced, whereas distillation is hurry up and wait. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you make the mash, you ferment it, you put it away and then you wait six, eight, ten years. Um, but, but thankfully we haven't had very many, you know, what the hell are we going to do now moments? Right. You know, as a, as a, as one of my mentors told me many, many moons ago, you know, there are no problems, only solutions. Uh, I try as best as I can to keep that in mind. Sometimes those solutions are hard to find. <laughs> so I guess the, the big news is that Four Roses is investing uh, $55 million into expanding operations. But we all know within remodeling projects with a budget of 15%. So we're going to say $63 million is is probably what it's going to be. So uh, kind of talk about what's going to happen with that. Like what 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 is going into uh, $55 million slash whatever mm-hmm. uh, is what's going to be built here at the property? Well, a big chunk of that is warehouses. Believe it or not, warehouses are incredibly expensive. So we have money in there for a few warehouses going on to Cox's Creek. Uh, we also put in a 80,000 square foot bottling facility with what we call a high speed bottling line. I'm sure by most other distillery standards, it's a pretty quick, you know, bottling line. Um, but what's going on here at the distillery is we're doubling everything. We're doubling the capacity and we're doing that in such a way to maintain the quality and the integrity of the product. Um, it would have been a lot cheaper to go out and pick a green field and build, you know, a second distillery, so to speak. 
However, then there's this there's this perception you have two different still distilleries and maybe they operate differently. Um, plus, again, this gets back to what I had mentioned before, the voodoo or the terroir, that microclimate that is in within the distillery, particularly fermentation. So what we're doing is, is we're really shoehorning all of that equipment into the existing facility. We're taking and adding, you know, doubling the yeast capacity, our mashing capacity, another cooker. Uh, we're adding another doubler, another beer still, all under the same roof. Oh, wow. So it's been a tremendous work of moving an elevator shaft 14 feet over to accommodate a cooker. So spending a lot of money that normally you'd say, that's ridiculous. So build another building. But it's, <laughs> but it, it's to maintain that integrity. And in just a moment, the, the in fermentation is where it really matters. Because, again, we've been fermenting with these five yeast strains in this one building, you know, f- since, what, 1910. And that and the lactic uh, bacteria that we use to get the sour mash all those things live in that room. There's a microclimate in there. The brick, the wood, everything is impregnated with that. So to build another fermentation area separate from where we are, there's that, you know, could we make the same product? Yes, probably. Would it be the same quality? Yes, probably. However, it's not worth taking the chance. Again, with beer, you know, in three weeks, six weeks, you've got the result. You can tweak it. You've got the result again. Here, you make it, you put it to bed for six, eight, ten years. By the time you realize you're okay or there's a difference, well, it's too late. You have warehouses full of a, possibly a different product. So in order to, to maintain that consistency, um, basically, you know, imagine fermentation as, as a room with four sides. We're going to blow three of those sides out and expand around that. Fill that space with the same mixture of, of uh, wooden and stainless steel fermenters, primarily wood. They're open fermenters. And then allow the existing fermenta- fermentation area to breathe and to migrate into that existing space. And then we will slowly start utilizing those fermenters to guarantee us you know, that same microclimate. We're not changing it. Because, again, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, I was appalled or shocked by the, the difference in sanitation. Well, that's where it's really key. You know, in a brewery, in a, in a brewery, you would love to just spray uh, chlorine all over the place and kill everything and make sure that you only have one yeast strain growing at a time. In the distillery, it's much different. If I were to go down there to our existing fermenting, fermenter room and chlorinate that whole room, I would probably, it would probably have a huge impact on the product after doing so. Is it because of what was called like the, the sour mash process of just being able to have like um, partial of whatever was the, the the last batch into the new batch? Or, I mean, what 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 is what is the yes and no? Yes and no. That's kind of the the voodoo again. You know, it's living because you say, well, wait a minute, you're putting one strain of yeast depending on what you're making, and you want that yeast to flourish. So we give it the best environment so that yeast flourishes. But yes, there is that carryover of the the back set, the sour mash, the, you know, the stillage. We're taking off the still that came from a previous fermenter and putting it in the next fermenter. Um, you know, again, it's that kind of the voodoo of, well, no, we don't want stuff to fall off the walls into a fermenter. That's not part of it. It's just there, there is such a thing, I think, in, in, in distillation and ferment, in fermentation, the way we do it is too clean. You know, if you start getting rid of those bugs that have lit, I say bugs, yeasts that have lived in that room for, you know, 100 plus years, 
you run the risk of changing it. There's a, there's a neat story about a, a Belgian brewery uh, just a few years back that um, they went into a building that had been sitting vacant for about 100 years. They were expanding their fermentation in, in huge closed barrels. Um, but in order to, to kind of have the same terroir, they basically took their different products and sprayed the brick and sprayed the wood and let it grow to kind of simulate that. Wow. Yeah. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. So how do you, I mean, when you double expansion, double production, double everything, and you're not building a separate facility, but putting them together. How in the world do you continue not only production, but also you, you said you're, you know, you want to create the kind of same environment. I mean, is to manage that process and to continue, continue to fulfill demand of, of the product that you make. How do you, how do you, how do you manage that whole process? Very carefully. I mean, again, it's, 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 Communication here is the key. Everyone here is a brand ambassador. I mean, every, every worker in the distillery knows what they're doing. They take a tremendous amount of pride in what they're doing. But, you know, essentially you can break down what we're doing is we're operating what I'll call the current, the existing facility the way it is. We're duplicating everything. I mean, the cooker will be a mirror image of the new or the new cooker will be a mirror image of the existing, the yeast room, everything. So we're not changing how we do it. We're not adding a bigger cooker and taller fermenters because, you know, the, the, the geometry of a fermenter has an impact. The volume, the hydrostatic pressure has an impact on the yeast. So we are keeping everything as much as possible identical to what we're doing now. Um, and it costs a lot more money to do that, but 
Yeah, and that was, that was actually a, a pretty good question by Michael Leeper on Facebook. And he says, and kind of tails onto that, it says, like, how do you how do you deal with the issues that, that you struggle with as you as you scale up distillation? Because you've got things to meet, such as grain, glass, packaging, and at, at the end of it, you've got labor as well. So so yeah. how do you how do you meet those expectations when you're adding on a, a, almost a, a second distillery onto this? Yeah, well, we, we started this years ago, and you know, primarily with meeting with our suppliers and saying, hey, look, again, we're we're, we're non-GMO corn. We're the only non-GMO dis- bourbon distillery. Are we going to be able to get that GMO, non-GMO corn? Yes. You know, are we going to be able to get the same quality rye? Yes. You know, is the same malt available? Yes. So all the raw materials are available to us. Um, you know, things like copper and, and Vendome's time because they're, you know, they're just as busy as we are. We had to order a lot of this stuff a year, two years out. Um, so it's careful planning. There's, I don't think we're in danger of, of running out of any material, whether it's wood for fermenters or wood for barrels. Um, labor, yes, we're going to need more labor. We've hired some engineers we have now on staff that have been a tremendous addition to our team. Um, we won't double our, our labor in the plant, but we will certainly be adding jobs. Um, you know, there is going to be some economy to that scale. Um, and, and packaging. Again, we're, of all the bourbon distilleries, we're the smallest. So we're not looking at the quantities, you know, a, a Jim Beam is looking at for obtaining material. But but even in their case, I'm sure they're fine to get the materials they're getting. It's just it's just managing it and, you know, really eating, breathing and and drinking it, so to speak. I mean, we really got to be thinking about it. It's the passion. You really have to be thinking about it at all times. And I think that's, that's part of what passion is. It's not just coming to work, doing your job and going home and forgetting about it. It's the sitting up at 11, you know, 11, I wish sitting up at 3am going, Oh (laughs) shit, we can do it this way. Or, or we should do it this way. Or we forgot about this. Well, and I mean, you know, having managed people in, in, in my career, you're managing people in your career, you know, that's, that's part of the, 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 the job that they don't tell you about is like, you're constantly, your brain is constantly going, thinking, how can we do this just a little bit better? Train our people just a little bit better, mm-hmm. make this work just a little bit better and help our company grow just a little bit better. So at the end of the day, you know, we're not only competing, but we're exceeding, you know, expectations of, Kieran or, or, uh, our customers or our retailers or whoever's in the, in the process. Yeah. I think the good thing is, is that's been ingrained in our team for so long. You know, this, the being quality minded isn't new because we had new ownership in 2002. I mean, this is something that we've always strived for. Um, it is a big challenge, but again, it's, it's, it's one of those things we all, we all wanted and it's exciting to see. So I guess uh, it kind of good rolls into a good question because you know you're you, you know you're, you're CEO of all this, but I guess um, one thing to kind of ask is how do you like working with Brent? Like, what well, what is it like working with Brent in in regards of uh, what he wants to see and and what you're what you're outputting? Brent and I have a tremendous relationship. I mean, when Brent and I, when I first moved here, Brent I think was with the company just about a year, and you know we became quick friends. Like I said, we live in the same neighborhood, you know, where our families, our friends, our kids have played. We, we do things together. It's, so we have a great relationship. We have very common goals. There's, there's really no head butting. It's, it's, 
you know, we, we speak very freely. Again, that's, it, I think what we have here, not Brent and I, but just Four Roses in general, is very unique, not just to the industry, but I think unique to most working situations where people are so comfortable and happy to come to work. And it's such a great thing to talk about. I mean, we had last year just, what, 68,000 people come through the distillery, you know, they came through the distillery, tucked in the woods here in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, and each and every one of them, they didn't stumble upon it. They, you know, this was a destination that they wanted to come to. They wanted to see, they wanted to talk to us. Um, you know, like I said, Brett and I work very well together. We make ourselves very accessible to anyone on the team or anybody in the public. Um, so it's, it's a great relationship. I think the next step is, you know, again, Brett and I started about the same time. The one thing that we've always wanted to do a little bit more was create more, develop new products. Um, you know, I'm sure people are going to start asking when you come. Oh, no, let's go. Let's go. Rye, you know, maybe <laughs> a barley based bourbon. You know, there's a lot of different things. And, and suffice to say that both Brett and I are chomping at the bit to do that um you know first and foremost it's get the the expansion complete um and then we will have some excess capacity and we really do hope to to look down that that road and maybe do some some new exciting experimentation go ahead humorous what, what are you thinking I, there's a number of things i, I don't want to say anything because I, you know somebody will take the ball and run with it but um again we're very traditional it, it we're not going to be doing any flavored bourbons or any you know fly by night type of stuff but they're you know a rye i mean we, we use the highest percentage of rye of any of the big bourbon distilleries out there um with our variety of yeast and our knowledge of the yeast and or the uh, well, yeast yes but and the the rye and how it operates uh, puts us in a very good position to do a much higher rye or a straight rye or a you know a barley based bourbon or you know one of the things i see you know when you look at innovation in in distillation and particularly in a bourbon distillery is aging bourbon in different types of casks now you can't call it bourbon um, it's bourbon aged in xyz cask but i think that's kind of the next thing that you're going to see not not from Four Roses necessarily, but I think from all bourbon distilleries is aging in different casks to give a variety. And it's very, very popular with scotch. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if you see a lot more of that with bourbon. Oh, sorry. I'm going to finish up with two questions for you. So uh, one of them is, so it's, you are a big brewer and you got your, you got your history in brewing. So kind of talk about, you know, it, we always talk about like, oh, like there's, there's pretty much a lot of similarities between brewing and distillation, but what are the differences? Like, what are the stark differences between being a brewer and being a distiller? Well, in terms of the process, in terms of the process, um, the the mashing sequence is very different. You're usually you're you're starting at a low temperature in brewing, and depending on whether you're infusing or you're you're heating directly, you're you're raising that temperature. In distillation cooking, you're starting at the high end of the temperature because of the corn, and then you're working your way down and adding different grains at different temperatures because of the enzymes and their sensitivity. Um, again, sanitation is a big one. The beer only has to be 88 hours old or let's say three and a half, four days old. So as long as you give it a good, healthy population of yeast and you did your mashing, cooking correctly, you're going to have a really good, stable product. Um, but if you don't keep that machine running constantly and that beer starts to get older in age, it starts to change and you start to have quality issues. Um, Again, there's no instant reaction in a brewery. You can you can play around on a small scale. You can um, get a result in three weeks, six weeks, and say, you know, we, maybe we need to tweak it a little bit, or or we'll call it this, or we'll we'll make it into that. Um, again, in the distillery, once you make it, 
You know, if it doesn't meet the st- your st- our standard, we either sell it off to someone and it gets turned into hand sanitizer or redistilled <laughs> for ga- a gas additive or expensive vodka. Um, there is no second chance. So you have to make that distillate right the first time. Um, and then it goes into a barrel, again, an all-natural product, um, and it's got to age. So there's that hurry up and wait. I mean, and again, our minimum age is six years. And so you're waiting a tremendous long time and putting a lot of faith in what you've done and what Mother Nature is going to do to get that product out there. So, you know, beer, beer is very diverse. Bourbon's very diverse. Beer's just a lot quicker turnaround and results. So you can tweak things and fine tune things a lot quicker than you can bourbon. You're a stout guy or a hops guy? Um, you know, I, I drink all styles of beer. I think, you know, every beer has its place. Um, I studied in Germany. Uh, my specialty was Hefeweizen, Bavarian wheat beer. Um, but, you know, right now, if you were to open up my beer fridge, I've got a lot of IPAs and a lot of Belgian beers. Good deal. So if we had to uh, close this out and we had to say, what was the best beer you had in 2016 or the past year? Oh, what well, What's it going to be? Because, you know, I'm, I'm a stout guy. Yeah. I'm a, I like, I like, you know, for, at least for me, like it's, it's not, it's not a bourbon, but it's goddamn, it's probably the closest thing I'm going to get to a bourbon, yeah. right? Like yeah. if I can, if I can stick a fork in it or stick a knife in it and yeah. it sticks, like that's like, I want a big, thick, heavy stout. Well, like that, that's what I like. And I need to have you, you guys over to the house sometime. And I've been talking to Brent about this. I've got just a, a massive collection of, of bourbon, rum and beer and primarily the beer um, is comprised of Russian Imperial stouts, barley wines, milk stouts. They're all these big bombers. And a lot of them are just, you know, friends that are brewers. We'll send them from their breweries or people that have aged in our barrels. will send us these stouts. So I, I do love stouts, but there's, there's only so much Russian Imperial stout I can drink. And it's tough to come home and open a 750 and go, I'm going to drink a 750 of 11% beer yeah, right now. Yeah. I can do it. I do do it, but I can't do it every day. I would say um, a good, a good, Part to that is the fact that you oh like I'm gonna give you a barrel you just make sure you send me send me a sub oh, back yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah and, but working in beer and in bourbon you know there's no shortage of when I if when I go to a bar and if I've got to pay just a crazy price for a drink you know I think back to you know decades of never paying for a drink and all this free stuff I have at home but not not to skirt around your question I mean the, the best beer I've had I mean it depends on the moment. It depends on the activity, depends what, what's going on. But, you know, if I had to pick some favorite beers, I, I go to the Belgian styles. Uh, Orval is probably one of my favorites. Duval, I really enjoy. Um, I'm trying to think of a really good, I've had some really good barrel aged beers recently from Firestone Walker. Um, uh, Brooklyn has sent me some, Garrett Oliver has sent me a bunch of his ghost beers that you can't get. Yeah, I had a Speedway Stout a few weeks ago and I yeah. thought it was pretty impressive. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's it changes. I mean, you know, the best beer is the one I've got in my hand, I guess. It's, yeah, I know, <laughs> right? Awesome. Well, uh, you know what, Ryan, I want to say thank you for coming on the show today. This is fantastic. Uh, we learned a lot more just about Four Roses and the operations that goes into it and what's coming to what we're going to see. So, I mean, Lyndon, what did you think? Great, great stuff. Appreciate meeting you. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Anytime. Yeah. So if you like what you hear, make sure you support us on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bourbon Pursuit. Follow us on Instagram uh, and Twitter and Facebook at Bourbon Pursuit. And if you have any more show suggestions or people would like to see, make sure you send us an email. That's the duo, T-H-E-D-U-O at Bourbon Pursuit.com. Thank you again. And we'll see you all next week. Mm-hmm.